The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We have a, a special introductory offers to all three newsletters. You can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to my website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks. Dot com to learn more about those uh, three publications. Chen, in particular, has had a phenomenal track record, and I think he deserves your attention. One of the accounts that we have been tracking uh, that Chen has managed uh, has grown from a mere $5,400 back in January of 2003 to just a whisker under $1.1 million at the end of last month. Our show, of course, offers a lot of, we think, a lot of great free information. I'd also like to bring uh, to your attention uh, jayswatchlist.com. Uh, there's also a lot of interesting companies there. This is sort of a, uh, a screening uh, device, if you will, for my newsletter. I look at companies that come through Jay's Watchlist as possible 
companies for inclusion and recommendation in my newsletter. And those of you who uh, who, who watch, um, who, who uh, are subscribers to my letter, will recognize some names from Jay's watch list as well as some of the companies that come through as sponsors. Uh, I recognize and learn to know about them as after they become sponsors here on this show. Uh, on Jay's watch list, jayswatchlist.com, we're going to have some very interesting new things available to you in the near future, not just paid uh, clients of Jay's watch list, but some more new interesting ideas. Mark Weaver, he's a former college professor uh, in Toronto. Uh, he is working on, with Jay's watch list, and he's going to be coming up. He's going to be coming on our show, actually, quite frequently uh, to talk about some new exciting companies uh, in the technology area as well as in the resource area. Uh, and he'll also be writing some reports. And uh, I think next week we're going to have Mark on with a very interesting technology story to tell you about. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show because of folks like you who are tuning in either uh, to the live version of this show or listening by way of the archives. Turning Hard Times into Good Times is now the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. So we're thankful to all of you for for listening because that's, that's why we are uh, doing so well. The numbers are growing every week. Last but not least, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. I want to thank uh, the sponsors for the first hour of this show, uh, Barkerville Gold, American Bonanza, Merrick's Gold, Inc., Palangio Exploration, Tara Minerals, PMI Resources, Crocodile Gold, and Bayfield Ventures Corp. We we are thankful to Bayfield Ventures Corp. They are a brand-new sponsor this week. We will be interviewing the CEOs of these sponsors at least once during each quarter, each uh, season. Our season goes through June 29th. Uh, That's the spring season. Uh, But you can also learn more about them uh, in the meantime by checking on the banners of our Voice America radio website. Just click on those banners, and it'll take you right through to the websites of the sponsors to this show. With respect to our sponsors, we want to emphasize that we are not recommending that you buy their stocks. We are using this radio program as a venue for them to tell their stories to you. Uh, I also use my conversations with these companies, as I just mentioned, uh, for possible uh, screening and to learn to know new stories for possible inclusion in my newsletter. Never any guarantee of that. It depends on whether it fits my investment perspective at a given time as to whether companies are, uh, are, are chosen for inclusion in my newsletter. Um, with regard to investing, let me remind you that uh, you do need to do your own homework, and I think you should check in with your financial planner when you have a chance to do that. I think it's always a wise thing to do. We titled the show this week, Is the Financial System Fixed or Is It Lights Off for Western Civilization? In discussing the financial system, we are going to depart from the norm a bit, as we normally talk about resource companies and uh, gold in particular, but we're going to talk to Dick Beauvais. He's a very well-known Wall Street analyst who covers the financial industry. Last we heard, Dick thinks the financial industry is on the mend, and he has turned quite optimistic about bank stocks. Of course, we hope he is right, but frankly, I'm not convinced he is, so we will throw some questions to Dick uh, based on comments made from the likes of Meredith Whitney and the boys uh, from a very successful hedge fund uh, that has been short. The market has done extremely well by shorting the financial sector. So we'll have some questions for Dick and see what he has to say. Uh, if the financial system completely implodes, as it almost did after the Lehman Brothers collapse, it could result in lights going off for Western civilization. But last week, Matthew Simmons all but guaranteed the lights will go off for Western civilization, unless, of course, we invest in his uh, windmill project off the coast of Maine. Well, 
but a much more upbeat view of the energy markets comes from our second guest this week. He was with us last week as well, Paul Michael Wiebe. Paul was, as I say, with us last week. We didn't have enough time really to get into all the things that Paul had to say. In particular, we want to ask him this week about some of the promising technologies and some of the resources. Paul maintains that we have all the oil, gas, and uh, energy supplies we need in North America to do just fine with. So we're going we're gonna to try to hear more of his story. Then finally, Rick Rule who I think is one of the sharpest investors in the world, will be our next guest. Rick uh, will be with us to tell us what he's investing in these days. Rick also has a very strong uh, background in oil and gas, so we're going to want to see what he has to say in light of the uh, the Gulf oil uh, problem and the energy markets in general. And Rick, I'm sure, will have something to say about the general equity markets. Rick is really uh, a contrarian investor, so... Uh, with the markets up so much from their bottoms in March, we're going to see what Rick has to say. Well, right now, though, I want to turn to my uh, good friend and partner, Chen Lin. Uh, Chen did uh, now put out his final, or uh, did uh, pass along to me the um, uh, the balance of his uh, account that we talk about here, the uh, Roth IRA account, and it is just a whisker under $1.1 million, up from $5,400 in January of 2002. It is, folks, a, an amazing track record. Uh, this is the one that we track. Chen manages the money for his family, for other other accounts, too. But this is the one we track because there's no leverage, there's no money going in, no money coming out. So it's very easy to keep track of the performance of this portfolio. And it is, uh, in my view, nothing short of amazing. Well, Chen, um, congratulations on that superb performance. Oh, thank you, Jay. Um, Chen, we have about four minutes here. I just want to pick your brains a little bit on... Uh, you liked paper pulp stocks a lot last week. You liked oil stocks. Are you still as bullish on both sectors as you were a week or so ago? Yes, I'm still very bullish. Look at today. The only gainer, actually, is in green. It's a paper pulp stock, it's CFX.UN. Uh, you know, it's an income trust. It's paying 15% dividend. They just published another article that they're going to raise their dividend again. Uh, they did, today, I listened to another conference for another uh, pulp stock, which is Mercer International. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the management say they expect the pop to be strong for years to come, plural, it's years to come. So basically it seems to me that the most analysts was expecting, you know, uh, was, their expectation was, was too, way too low. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the strength of the market, um, there's, uh, you know, just con- probably going to be continuation of the very high price versus, you know, make the pop producer a lot of money in the, mm-hmm. for, for maybe years to come. Mm-hmm. Well, the, certainly your paper pulp stocks have done phenomenally well. What about oil right now? Given the Gulf of Mexico d- uh, debacle, what is your what are your thoughts on oil now and oil sh- oil stocks in general? Yeah, oil stock, I, w- I would actually uh, I would think more favor the land drilling driller, mm-hmm. and uh, because the ocean driller, there will be some headwind for them. There will be tighter regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be a high, very high insurance now. Look at the loss for, for BP and the Transocean. The insurance for future oil driller, over, offshore oil driller, will be very high. So, um, so the, but ironically, today, actually, Africa Energy, which is my top pick for offshore driller, is uh, flat today. It's down mm-hmm. 0.5%. So it's very good for some because it has value in, in the stock. So I think people just recognize it. Uh, stock didn't, didn't move much on a very big down day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the land-based driller Mart is doing okay. At one point it was up, now it's down. You know, it just happened that someone hitting bid and ask. The spread mm-hmm. is pretty wide. So, 
Uh, so, but I think that it will be favor land-based driller. Actually, it's bullish for oil stock because it's a midterm election coming. Obama may under a lot of political pressure, especially from Democrat Democrat Party, mm-hmm. their environmental wing to push them maybe shut down some of the uh, Gulf of Mexico production. Or okay, you know, so it could be very bullish for those land producers. Then, uh, Chen, do you have any names in mind for uh, a couple of names uh, for oil stocks that you're really keen on right now? Land-based well, stocks. Right now, the mostly the land base is Mart Energy MMT Adventure. That's your I favorite. Really like. Yeah, that's my my favorite. They can grow organically. They, they are there. You can see the previous uh, uh, quarter after quarter, their oil production decline very very little. So mm-hmm. and then they're going to drill another a few more wells, so that they can easily triple their production by the end of the year. Okay, excellent, Chen. We only have about a minute left. Uh, what are your thoughts on on gold? I saw gold spiked up big this morning when the equity market started down. Then gold got slammed real hard in the New York markets, and then it started to climb back to get today. But what are your thoughts about gold now? How's gold looking near term, let's say through the summer to you? I think summer may be a little bit flat. Maybe you know the shot will come in to push it, try to push it lower. But if gold can stabilize over the summer, that's wonderful news. By the end of the year, we can see a huge rally. I can see easily go to 1,500, even more. depends on how much people put on faith in this financial system. Yeah. So my plan is to buy gold stock during the summer. I see a lot of gold stock actually was hammered down, was not moving with gold stock, and, and was not go, moving with gold price, but recently was hammered. Uh, that's that's just really ridiculous. So there's so many good gold stock. I think we can take our time to buy over the summer. Okay, so you're seeing the the recent weakness in the gold shares is offering a real opportunity for investors right now. And so you are you're looking for some names, I guess, and maybe we can ask you about some of the ideas that you have in that regard in a future uh, in a future show. Thank you, Chen, very much for being with us, folks. Don't go away. We're going to have uh, Eugene Larrabee. He is the president and CEO of Coronado Resources. It's a very small gold and copper producer, but with some extremely high grades and also some very interesting prospects uh, in the Philippines. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Eugene Larrabee. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. 
American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. PMI Gold has just raised $7.5 million to expand drilling at four former gold mines we own in Ghana. Ghana is Africa's second largest gold producer, and with neighbors like Newmont, Anglo Gold, and Goldfields, and a land position equal to the entire length of the Carlin Gold Belt, we're going for the gold. PMI Gold is listed in Canada and Frankfurt, and plans to list on the Australian Stock Exchange to finance development of our first mine at our Kubi Gold Project. Our plans are big and growing. Come grow with us. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I have with me now Eugene Larrabee. He is the president and CEO of Coronado Resources. Coronado is a sponsor to this show, and we are grateful to Eugene and the company for their sponsorship because that 
Coronado, as well as the other sponsors, make this show financially viable and possible to bring to you every week. So Coronado Resources trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol CRD. Its pink sheet symbol is CRDAF, CRDAF. Earlier today, the stock was quoted in Toronto at around 17 or 18 cents with only 24.1 million shares. It has a minuscule market cap of slightly under $4 million. Welcome, Eugene, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. How you do? Uh, very good to have you with us. Uh, you have been operating the Madison Gold and Copper property in Montana for several years uh, now. Unlike many of the Canadian mining companies that we cover, you have exercised considerable patience in developing that project. You have been selling high-grade ore from time to time, uh, direct shipment of, of that ore, I believe, and and using the proceeds to finance a gradual development of the mine and mining project, sort of a pay-as-you-go process, rather than diluting the number of shares that you have, um, which I guess that's the reason. You have only 24.1 million shares, a very low market cap. In my way of thinking, Eugene, that's admirable. Um, I'm wondering, would like to ask you, first off, do the insiders own a, a considerable amount of the stock? Well, actually, the ins- insiders, I'm not privy to everyone, but we, we call a core group. We uh, estimate on somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the stock. Okay, so that to me, um, to me, that's one of the most important things for people to look at. If you're a shareholder, you like management's interest to be the same as your sh- as you, a shareholder, and that means that you're, you know, longer term at least, um, at least they have the same interest at heart. And I've seen many times people running uh, mining companies like to, like like to build big projects, and they many times don't have much of an interest in uh, an equity interest. They just would really like to have their name attached to a major project. And so they, a lot of times, will just, you know, raise all kinds of equity and dilute the shareholder interest. So in any event, it doesn't seem as though the market is terribly impressed, though, Eugene. I guess people are not all that patient when they're looking to, to make money. They want to make it fast. They don't want to wait. Uh, but, you know, your stock was at $2 in 2007, but then with the Lehman Brothers debacle, it got smashed like everybody else's stock. It's now, as I say, at around 17 or 18 cents. The question uh, that I have is um, I see that you just announced the shipment of some very high-grade copper ore to a Korean smelter, I believe. And, um, you know, if my math is correct, that would be a gross um, income of about $600,000, $640,000. I know not all that goes to Coronado. Some of it goes to the smelter. But um, it's a nice little chunk of change relative to your market cap, to your size and all that. But when do you think that investors were going to start to see um, a real picture of a, of a growing deposit and something that they can really get excited about? How long is it going to take before we can start to get have a vision of what is um, you know what's possible there uh, at the Madison facility? Yeah, yeah just to uh, the, actually the shipment would net us a little over half a million dollars. Okay, and and that's enough money to fund uh, all our uh, stope development and stope preparation. For the uh, earlier announced uh, tonnage that we had, which we announced in a news release in October, mm-hmm. so um, and, and uh, as far as reaching our full potential, we would think we would do so probably in the last quarter of this year. So that's uh, that's our uh, I think that's a safe haven, safe safe bet, safe bet. The last quarter yeah. of this year, and one. So you would be able to 
Uh, I mean, you're, you're processing. You're basically direct shipping the ore. Is that right, or are you processing some of the some of the material on site? No, the grade is such. That's why we were able to get into production so quickly with the high grade copper of something in the order of sixty percent was the higher assays that we received, and the gold uh, we had uh, you know some holes a hit over, over an ounce and so on. Although we're averaging probably a half an ounce in gold. So uh, we see no reason we're able to go to custom mills, and we see no reason to uh, mill ourselves, which, of course, is, uh, saves us a lot of money, a lot of permitting. Yeah, indeed. Um, so that's, that's phenomenally rich copper. I mean, uh, I guess the big question in investors' minds is, well, they're probably thinking, well, yeah, there's a little bit of it there, but it's not enough to really get people excited. Otherwise, the share price wouldn't be sitting at $0.17. Cents. So. What would you say to skeptics, people that are saying, yeah, yeah, it's not that interesting because it's just not, it's just a little mine. What sort of potential do you think this, this has? I know you can't really answer that until you put the truth machine down, the drill, the drill bit uh, in various places and come up with statistically with, with the right, with numbers. But what sort of sense, do you have any sense at all of the size of the structure, what this thing could be? Do these, de- these kinds of deposits go to great depths or a long strike? Do you have any sense of how big this could be? Well, we're, we're quite confident that it goes out on strike in both directions and it's still going down. Uh, but we don't have any drill holes to tell us. That's just uh, from the mining itself. And these type of ore bodies, the, the, the ore zones are small but extremely high grade, which means uh, you know, we don't have to remove the tonnage to produce the, uh, the metal, right? be gold or copper. So your cost per pound or cost per ounce should be relatively low. That's right. Yes, it is. Okay. All right. So you're basically going to continue on with this process of, of uh, paying as you go and developing a project, and then, uh, you know, sooner or later, uh, especially if the metal prices remain high, you should be doing very well with this. Yeah, that, that's the only problem we could have if the price of gold goes down. And I don't think anybody in the world expects that to happen. Well, there might be some people that do, but not too many that listen to this show, perhaps. Now, let me ask you, uh, you have ventured on to the Philippines, and could you just give our listeners a little bit of a view of the Philippines? That, I understand that's a small production facility there, a gold, a gold producer there. Is that right? That's right. We have more than one. As a matter of fact, there are three uh, small producers. And it's what the people are operating, what they call a small-scale mining permit, where they operate the mines... Uh, by themselves uh, with uh, some uh, maybe a local uh, local help sort of thing and uh, the mo- everything is relatively expensive because for instance uh, labor costs you five dollars a day so uh, you can do a quite a bit of work uh, very inexpensively so that's what's happening right now and uh, one of them uh, one of the people involved has a small uh, mill that he operates so they mill and uh, ship their gold themselves uh, to uh, to a buyer uh, in Manila Okay, if when you were saying small, could you give our listeners just some sense of how much gold might be produced in a year there? Oh, in a year, I don't know. On a Pardon. daily basis, they might produce somewhere around 10 to 20 ounces. On a daily basis? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. All right, well, again, is that a sort of a pay-go situation there? You just develop slowly, raise cash, drill, explore, develop. Is that that's the process? That's your... That's your um, that's your policy, I guess. Yeah, that's what we're looking at right now, and it's more or less to get a feel of uh, what goes on. Uh, I can see it quite easily. Uh, production could be increased quite easily, so uh, that potential is there, and we're going to look at it some more. 
Okay, so in both cases, your real risk, you think, really, the, the only risk you see, well, I don't know if I want to put words in your mouth, but the only, the real risk you see is a metals price, is a decline in, in, um, in gold and copper. Are you equally bullish on copper as you are gold? Uh, no, we're more bullish on gold, of course, but uh, we always want to keep an eye on the uh, copper price. Our most recent shipment, we were able to get uh, three dollars and fifty-two cents a ton. Uh, now yeah. a pound for a uh, pound. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, and the price right now is around three fifteen or three twenty. So we've done quite well on that. Okay. Um, uh, is there some place uh, your website that people can go to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, yes, we do. We keep our website up to date as much as we can. So it's uh, the and the uh, the best place to go, and that's and, uh, is that Coronado dot com or something or yes Coronado Resources Ltd dot com. Okay, well, thank you very much, Eugene. Uh, we're out of time now. We're going to have to go to the uh, commercial break. We'll be uh, folks. Don't go away though. We're going to have Dick Bouvet. He's going to be with us at the other side of the break. Uh, one of Wall Street's leading experts in the financial industry, and we're going to. Uh, have some questions for Dick. We think he's going to have a lot of interesting things to tell us, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Dick Beauvais. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I believe Columbus Silver Corp traded Toronto symbol CSC and in the United States symbol CSLVF offers a potential gain of several fold over its March 31st price of 18 cents. I say that because of its low market cap, its Mojion gold and silver property hosting a partly delineated deposit containing 18 million ounces of silver and 300,000 ounces of gold equivalent. I say that also because of a strong management team. The stock is, of course, not without risk, but in my view, the risk reward ratio is presently very favorable. Go to ColumbusSilver.com to learn more. 
Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well-positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. Coronado Resources is a Canadian-based exploration and development company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange. Its wholly owned Madison Gold Copper Project in Montana, USA has received revenue from high-grade gold and copper shipments while developing its underground workings to 250 feet below surface while limiting share dilution. Coronado is now driving the decline an additional 60 feet below the lowest workings to access the rich gold mineralization encountered from recent drilling and continue exploring the system, which is open at depth. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits, Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. Merex has indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya gold deposit. For more information about Merex Gold, visit us on the web at www.merexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me one of Wall Street's best-known financial sector analysts. I'm speaking of Dick Bouvet, who I frequently listen to on Bloomberg Radio in the morning as I'm getting uh, ready for my day. Uh, or see on on one of the mainstream uh, television networks on CNBC or Bloomberg or what have you. Uh, Dick covers the financial services, as I mentioned, uh, the banking sector as well. Uh, Mr. Bouvet joined Rockdale Securities in April of 2009. His research has received recognition from a number of industry sources over the years. He has appeared in over 400 programs uh, times in recent years on the, on popular business channels and is extensively quoted in the prime in the print media as well. 
From time to time, uh, Mr. Bouvet has been uh, contacted by the uh, banking regulators up to and including the White House for his thoughts on the industry. Welcome, Dick, to turning hard times into good times. Thank you. Uh, Bob Hoy, you may not know the name, but he's an analyst and a financial historian, has said the credit crisis we experienced in 2008 to 2009 was the sixth worst credit crisis in the last 300 years. Bob notes that the first four were UK-centric, with England being the world's superpower and having the dominant uh, global currency, the pound sterling at that time. The last one, uh, the previous one to this one, he maintains, was the 1930s, and of course it was the United States dollar was had come into its own as being the world's reserve currency, and now this one. I remember hearing you talk about the horrible things that were unfolding um, Actually, prior to 2000, uh, September of 2009, we were just talking before you came on the show. You were mentioning that you were a little early in your um, uh, in your negatives on the banking industry, uh, but I kind of remember hearing you talk about things that I believed were true in the banking industry. Uh, and I said to myself as I listened to you, I said, "Yes, this guy gets it. He really understands, and he's not." one of those characters out there who's just um, you know, saying nice things about his clients all the time. He really is worried about some of the things going on uh, in the financial sector. So, but I would like to ask you if, if we are, in fact, um, in the process of turning hard times into good times, do you think the worst of this downturn is over? Well, I believe that in the United States it is, yes, but I, I think that uh, we are going to go into a pretty difficult period in Europe. Uh, I think that... Uh, my best guess would be that Greece will default despite all of the um, activities that are now underway, and, and it won't default because of a lack of a willingness, we'll say, of countries in the Eurozone to make money available to Greece. It'll default because, you know, the Greek people will refuse to agree to the um, whatever the IMF strictures are that are put on on, on the, the provision, provision of this money. Uh, and I think that uh, that's going to create, you know, a, a great deal of upset in the in the world financial markets for a short period. Um, and, and then I think things will get sorted out, and we will be going to at good times. Well, let's hope you're right about that. Uh, nobody wants to see this sort of horror that we went through in September of 2009 and the, the following months, that's, that's for sure. Um, in an interview recently with Maria Bartiromo, another very well-known, uh, probably as well-known as you, if uh, another really well-known person in the industry, Meredith Whitney, was asked if she thought the banks were adequately capitalized by Maria Bartiromo. Meredith essentially said, well, that depends on the quality of the assets on the bank's balance sheet. If you believe those assets are what they say they are, then the answer is yes. But if you don't believe so, if you believe they are uh, you know, overvalued, or that they're not the the true uh, toxic nature of some of those assets. Uh, if you believe they are toxic, then the answer is no, that they're not adequately capitalized. So I'd like to ask you, what are what are, what is your sense of the of the assets on bank balance sheets these days? Are our banks, the U.S. banks, um, adequately capitalized? And I and I sense perhaps the answer will be yes, given your previous answer. But I'd just like to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, well, I think that you would you would start with uh, what Meredith said, which is is exactly correct. It's, it depends upon the quality of the assets. Now, if you take a look at the eight thousand plus banks in the United States, you will find uh, that are insured by the FDIC. You will find that just about ninety six percent of the loans on their balance sheets are current in terms of principal and interest payment. And I know that's a very difficult number for people to believe because 
they hear all of these huge numbers concerning what defaults are expected to be, et cetera. But, but the fact of the matter is that the overwhelming majority of the loans on the books of the banks are solid and sound. Uh, in terms of the securities that the banks own, uh, we've marked them down so aggressively over the past two years um, because this thing started, we'll say, at the end of 2007 into 2008, that I think that the quality of the uh, securities is also quite good. So given the fact that I assume that asset quality is quite high, if I then take a look at how much capital the banks have as a percentage of their assets, and the way I look at it is I take common equity plus their reserves and divide it by their assets, the only year in the recorded numbers that was better than this year was 1934. Mm. So I would have to say if for the past 75 years banks have not had as much capital as they have today on their balance sheet, it's pretty hard to argue that they're not overcapitalized. Well, there's some people that think that the banks have received sort of special treatment in the way they're allowed to mark their assets. Uh, you know, we did away, did we not, with mark-to-market accounting. Um, was that a good thing? Well, number one, we, we, we actually uh, still have mark-to-market accounting. It's just the rules have been weakened a bit, but the fact is that mark-to-market accounting, I, I think, did more harm than good because what it meant was that let's assume we have my mortgage or your mortgage, and that mortgage was sold to, we'll say hypothetically, Wells Fargo Bank or J.P. Morgan or whomever, uh, and you and I continue to make payments on our loans on a regular basis, but there was a fear that the mortgages held by Wells Fargo, in this instance, were only worth, you know, 80 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Well, your mortgage and my mortgage would be marked down by 20%, and mm-hmm. it would be considered to be a problem loan, mm-hmm. even though you and I are paying on the mortgages. Mm-hmm. So mark-to-market wasn't as accurate as, as people thought it was, and in fact, it imposed draconian standards on the industry, which I think were incorrect. However, it was done. The securities have been marked down to extraordinarily low levels, and for the next couple of years, because you and I will continue to pay on our mortgages, the value of those securities will be marked up, which will give banks, you know, unusually good profits. So, so in general, you would say that the mark-to-market accounting kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. You had a lot of a lot of good good assets that were now deemed to be not so good because because of the general rule. Exactly. In other words, if, if our mortgages had been packaged into a security and the security was going to be valued in line with all other mortgage securities, our loans would have been considered to be no good. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, since we were paying, I don't think that was a fair way to look at it. Mm-hmm. How, how significant um, the housing market was the big... Was the big um the big problem, right? Um, well, it was, the, it was the result of the big problem. The big mm-hmm. problem actually is a lot more complex than, than the market seems to want to look at. For example, if, if you take a look at the different costs of production in the United States versus, we'll say, uh, China or a Far Eastern nation, you will see immediately that 
you can't manufacture goods in this country at a price equal to the manufacturing costs elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that then leads to, this is going to be a falling domino story, that then leads to the second step, which is that Americans then buy goods from foreign countries. That leads to the third step, which is that the foreign countries now build up these massive hordes of funds. For example, mm-hmm. Americans are exporting one and a quarter billion dollars a day to buy goods constructed somewhere else. Mm-hmm. China all of a sudden winds up with $2 trillion in reserves. Mm-hmm. And then that gets to the next problem. What is China going to do with this money? Mm-hmm. You know, it can buy so many U.S. treasuries, then it can buy, you know, so many, you know, AAA quality uh, securities. But ultimately, there's so much money, and the money is growing so much faster than the economy mm-hmm. that the, the money starts to get invested in weaker and weaker quality credits until ultimately the money gets invested in uh, subprime mortgages, which are given to people who cannot afford to pay them. Well, right. Thank so you. What happens now is the price of housing is soaring. You know, the, 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 the companies, the people with the money are buying very low quality assets. And ultimately, if you do that for a long enough period, then the mortgages go bad and the whole thing collapses. And that, I think, is what occurred. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think that you've just hit on something. The main cause of the, of the housing debacle, the housing problem, the problems we're having now, is excessive amounts of money creation. Is that what exactly. you're saying? Yeah. In other words, if you took a look at the United States in the five years leading up to 19, uh, I'm sorry, to the year 2005, when, when we went negative, you would see that the growth of debt in the United States uh, grew at a pace three times faster than the growth in incomes. Mm-hmm. Well, ultimately, obviously, if that happens, you will uh, you will reach that point where there's not enough income to pay the debt, and you'll get a collapse. Mm-hmm. Now. In the interim, you also had all of these fraudulent things being done. You had all of these excesses occurring. You had a total breakdown in the regulatory system. So they were part and parcel of what created the collapse, but they were not, if you will, a prime mover. They were well on down the line uh, before these things could happen. Bottom line, I can't steal a million dollars from you Jay, if you don't have a million dollars, right. you know, I can steal whatever you've got. I can't steal more than what you have. <laughs> so you have to think about the fact that it was the money creation mm-hmm. that, cre- that was the first prime mover in this mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. It was the thefts and the, and, and the fraudulent activities that occurred well, well on down the line. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I think you've really hit the truth on the the nail on the head, uh, Dick, in this regard, because I think it goes back to if we think about the prolonged period of time that the interest rate was kept at very, very low levels during Mr. Greenspan's tenure, money was pumped into the system. And I'm saying, how can you be critical of the bankers? If I'm a, if I'm the CEO of a bank, my job is to maximize shareholder wealth. And I'm sitting with cash, and if I don't put that cash to work somewhere, somehow, I'm out of a job. Isn't that the way it works? Yeah, it, because you see, the problem that people uh, don't think about uh, is that the guy who has money has got a bigger problem than the guy who doesn't. Because the guy who doesn't have money doesn't have it, and that's, you know, life. But mm-hmm. the guy who has money has got to do something with it. Mm-hmm. There's pressure on that person to make put that money to work somewhere in some fashion. And ultimately, if the money keeps growing faster 
then the economy grows, he's, he or she is going to put that money somewhere where it's going to have a zero return, and then there's going to be a problem. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I haven't heard that many Wall Street, mainstream Wall Street guys talk about the, the problem being the start, the, the prime mover being the creation of money and credit out of thin air to start with back in, in those days. Uh, you know, and you go back in history a little bit and you realize, uh, you know, we had the, the dot-com bubble, right, in 2000. And that was a very serious collapse of the equity markets. A lot of wealth went to money heaven, as they like to say. And then Mr. Greenspan, trying to keep this thing from going further, pumped huge amounts of money into the system, creating another bubble, a bigger one. And now, Dick, my question is uh, to you is, where are we going from here? Are we in the process of creating still another bubble now? Uh, no, at the moment, well, we, we will create another bubble. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, I mean, I don't think that it will happen for, for a number of years. I think uh, there, there are a number of scholars, a guy named Hyman Minsky, uh, Mm-hmm. Charles Kindleberger, and a recent book that came out uh, by uh, a lady named Reinhardt and a guy named Rogoff, who, who, who's at mm-hmm. Harvard University. Mm-hmm. And, and each, what each one of these scholars have done is they've tracked, as, your, as the gentleman you mentioned at the start of this broadcast, they track you know, uh, collapses, financial collapses, going back to the 1600s. And they mm-hmm. you know, obviously picked up hundreds of them. And they then created generic, if you will, types of things that happened to create these collapses. And they found that pretty much all the collapses are created for the same reason. Uh, but when, when you're coming out of the collapse, you know, it takes a while before you're going to go into another one. And, you know, what we've been doing is shrinking wealth, sh- shrinking uh, asset values in, in the United States. So... We don't have the base yet of creating another bubble. Mm-hmm. But, but it, you know, if the economy is successful over the next four or five years, you know, we will build up that wealth, those excess funds, and, and there will be another collapse. But right. So you see enough, uh, enough, enough deflationary, enough debt pressure, I guess, right now, um, probably to, to hold inflation, at least inflation as the government counts it, uh, at bay. Yeah, I'm glad you said as a government counsel because obviously from that statement you realize it's a lot higher than the way the government counts it. Well, indeed, Dick, and I think that what we've seen is an enormous amount of inflation. I think you were alluding to it. We've seen an enormous amount of inflation in the, uh, in the asset prices. We've had asset price bubbles. So to say there's no inflation I think is, is not reading it correctly. We've had inflation. And the people that are in the game, the people that are on Wall Street, the people that are that are benefiting or getting richer, and again, they have problems, as you pointed out, because they do have the money. But clearly, in my way of thinking at least, I don't know what you would think about this, but it seems to me we have a reallocation of wealth from the people that really create things of use to, the, to Wall Street that is really gaming the system. Is that, does that make well, any sense? Well, that certainly has happened. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, for years uh, I have been wondering when there would be what I'll call a snapback. You know, in other words, the... The Gini Index, which I'm sure you're familiar with, I mean, it shows the dis- disparity uh, among different income groups in, in a given economy. Uh, the Gini Index w- was getting wider and wider, indicating that uh, the disparity uh, between the haves and the haves not and have-nots was growing. Mm-hmm. And it, we, we've had a snapback in the Gini Index in the last couple of years. And you, usually you get a, a strong political reaction to, uh, you know, th- th- this disparity in wealth, um, mm-hmm. which we-, we are going through 
at the moment. I think we are indeed. Uh, Ron Paul, who is going to be scheduled to be a guest with us next week, has been, I think, a beneficiary of this. The Tea Party group, the Tea Party movement, no doubt, is part of it. Uh, Ron Paul, I saw in a Rasmussen poll recently, uh, when Americans were asked who they'd best like to see as the next president, he uh, had 42 percent to 43 percent for Obama. No other Republican was in double figures. Now, here's a man that is saying we need to get rid of the Federal Reserve, we need to get rid of the income statement, the income tax, uh, the IRS. I mean, pretty radical stuff. Uh, and and uh, he's scoring high among a lot of people. Do you think that's part of what we're seeing, this this reaction? Yes, absolutely. I think, I think that, um, you know, we had reached an extreme point, uh, you know, when, when you have um, the average CEO out there making tens of millions of dollars, and the person who works for that CEO Making you know uh, thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, uh, there's going to be a reaction, and, and I think that we're well into that reaction. Okay. Well, speaking of reactions, there's been a heck of a reaction against Goldman Sachs. Could you? We have maybe five minutes left here. Can you? Can you comment a little bit about Goldman Sachs and uh, you know what are your thoughts on Goldman Sachs? We talked a little bit about it off the air, but perhaps you could share your your views of where Goldman Sachs is going in the future in light of these, these political reactions that we're seeing? Well, I think, you know, Goldman Sachs has uh, found itself in the same position that Andrew Mellon, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury a number of years ago, found himself. In other words, uh, Mellon was the Secretary of the Treasury for longer than any other uh, person in the United States from, you know, uh, for about 11 years. And, and at the time, depending upon which historian you read, he was the richest man in America. So when the Depression came... Uh, President Roosevelt decided this was the guy that he was going to, if you will, demonize to show how bad industrial America was, and he took him to court uh, over tax evasion after all of Roosevelt's advisors said Mellon didn't evade taxes. And he continued to to go after Mellon after Mm. Mellon would win court battles. Roosevelt kept going after him even after Mellon died because Mm. Mellon was the symbol of all that was evil in the industrial sector. Mm-hmm. All right, well, President Obama has Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is now the symbol of all that's evil in terms of the financial system, in terms of Wall Street, and he is going to go after you know Goldman Sachs continually until he brings Goldman Sachs to a point where the company uh, admits uh, you know all sorts of. Uh, aberrations where there's changes in management. He's going to, I think, hit him with a billion-dollar f- uh, fine. Uh, and at that point, when Goldman Sachs is properly humbled, uh, I think he'll he'll let Goldman Sachs alone. So I think what, what Goldman Sachs is doing now, because initially they didn't, they really didn't understand what was coming at them, mm-hmm. uh, and they they were arguing this narrow SEC case that nobody cares about uh, instead of understanding that they had to give something to the government, to the president, to uh, let him have this political win. Mm -hmm. I think they understand that now, and I think that uh, you will see over the next couple of weeks, uh, you know, some settlement coming out of uh, the Goldman Sachs situation. Very interesting. It probably didn't help Goldman Sachs politically that that their CEO talked about doing God's work. No, I mean, you know, there was, that, that was, an indi- I mean, he was just playing around, right? He was yeah. just kidding. But, you know, the fact that he didn't, that statement indicated he never understood how deep and how, how meaningful the problem was that his company was facing, mm-hmm. or yeah. that he himself was facing, because I don't think he's going to survive this. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Dick, I have to ask you about lending. Uh, are, ba- are banks making loans again aggressively, or where does that stand now? Because you know, when I read my history, I go back to the 1930s, and I realize that they're that they're you know one of the problems was they would pump money into the banking system, but they couldn't get banks to lend. You know, the pushing on the string analogy or lead a horse to water can't make him drink phenomenon. Is that changing? Are we seeing banks starting to make loans in any in any significant manner yet? No, I don't think so. And I, I think the problem essentially is this. In other words, the, the 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 government doesn't want the banks to get bigger, right? I mean, the too big to fail concept mm-hmm. is out there. That's number one. Number two, the government doesn't want banks to fund themselves with borrowed money. They want the banks to use deposits and capital. And then number three, the government wants the banks to take the deposits and capital that they have and put a fairly significant portion of it into um, liquid assets, you know, government mm-hmm. bonds, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. As a result, the banks are not generating the excess funds to lend. Mm-hmm. So let's assume that the banks wanted to lend, which, in my view, they do because that's how they make money. Sure. They don't lend money, they don't make money. So the net effect is they can't lend the money that is being forced into liquid assets. They can't grow their balance sheets because the government doesn't want the balance sheets to be too big. Mm-hmm. And they have to, and they have to, you know, get rid of uh, the borrowings that they have and supplement them with deposits in capital. So they're in a straitjacket. They, mm. they can't lend if they wanted to, and, I, and believe me, they want to because they can't make a lot of money if they don't lend money. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the government has this insatiable desire to borrow as it's bailing everybody out, essentially, and uh, deficit spending beyond belief that it needs the banks or it needs the savings, whatever there is, uh, not to go into the private sector. But on, but it's like a catch-22. If the private sector isn't growing, how do you develop uh, tax revenues? How do you get things growing so that there's some real wealth and vitality in the economy? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, the United States government is no different than kings of yore in that in kings of yore would simply tap the money first and everybody else gets what's left and the united states government is tapping you know the available bank money and everybody else gets what's left because part of the new program for banks is that in their securities portfolio they own securities which are guaranteed by the u.s government sure and and that's being forced on them by a change in the reserve requirements versus different assets that they might hold, which direct them into government securities. Mm-hmm. So the government is taking its tithe first, and, and everybody else has to wait in line. That's very, very interesting. Dick, we only have about a minute left, but I want to ask you, what? getting back to Goldman Sachs here, um, Goldman Sachs, a good buy? Is it a good long-term security to own? Would you be a buyer now? Yes, I would, although I'm losing money <laughs> with, that, with that position. But uh, I, think, I think it's pretty clear that uh, Goldman Sachs is the best trading platform uh, for any company, of any company in the world. By that I mean it can trade anywhere in the world, it can trade any type of financial instrument, and it has the technological background which is superior to their competitors. So they're going to make a lot of money and the stock is going to go up. Very interesting, Dick. I wish we had more time because there's so much more I would like to ask you, but that's all the time we have. Before we go, though, people can follow you how? Besides the major networks, uh, is there a website or a blog or something that you do? No, no, there isn't. Uh, so just, just, uh, just keep your eyes on the, on the television screens and perhaps the uh, YouTube uh, 
videos, they can catch your latest comments, and you're always out there so people can keep up with what you're doing. Dick, I want to thank you very much for coming on our show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Folks, don't go away because coming up next we're going to have, after the commercial break, uh, Paul Michael Wiebe, who will tell us, uh, give some more views that he has about the oil industry, the oil and gas industry. Paul takes a very much more positive view of the world and the, and the energy markets than uh, Matthew Simmons did last week when we had Matthew on our show. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Paul Michael Wiebe. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am your host, Jay Taylor. 
I believe Columbus Silver Corp, traded Toronto symbol CSC, and in the United States symbol CSLVF, offers a potential gain of several fold over its March 31st price of 18 cents. I say that because of its low market cap, its Mojion gold and silver property, hosting a partly delineated deposit containing 18 million ounces of silver and 300,000 ounces of gold equivalent. I say that also because of a strong management team. The stock is, of course, not without risk, but in my view, the risk-reward ratio is presently very favorable. Go to ColumbusSilver.com to learn more. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank uh, each of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of this show, because without them, the show would not be financially viable. Sponsors for our second hour are Barkerville Gold, Magellan Minerals, Apollo Gold, Columbus Silver, Coronado Resources, Uranium Energy, Gold Rich Mining, and Canico Resources. Well, last week I had Matthew Simmons on this show. As a leading peak oil advocate, Matthew Simmons provided a very dire picture of the ability of oil companies to produce the amount of oil that we in the West are going to need to keep living the same kind of lofty living standards we've become accustomed to. A bit more hopeful is my next guest, Paul Michael Wiebe. Paul Michael uh, Wiebe is president and founder of G-West LLC, uh, its global water and energy strategy team. Uh, it's a Washington-based consulting firm specializing in the geopolitics of strategic resources such as oil, gas, and water. Since the establishment of G-West in the late 2002, Mr. Wiebe has provided in-person briefing on energy and energy-related issues to the heads of state of Nigeria, Ecuador, Congo, Brazzaville, uh, Seo Tome, and Principe. Uh, he has also briefed senior congressional and administrative policy advisors and officials of the State Department, Commerce, Defense, and Energy. Mr. Wiebe has written numerous articles and studies and has testified to the U.S. Congress um, House African Subcommittee in March of 2000. Paul Michael was actually with us last week, and we barely touched the surface uh, with respect to the things he had to say, uh, and so I've invited Paul back. Paul Michael, thank you for coming back with us this week. Well, thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be on the program with you. It's uh, you really did provide uh, you know a glimmer of hope after we had Matt Simmons on last week. Matt was really basically telling us that it's all over, folks. The lights are going off. But by the way, I do have this project off the coast of Maine. Uh, the only hope we have, I think, if I'm quoting Matt. Uh, properly was uh, for some windmills off the coast of Maine or elsewhere. 
Well, I'm not sure about windmills. I, it seems to me there's lots of problems. I think, as you uh, suggested last week, there is certainly room for alternative energies. There's some niche markets for solar, for wind, and so forth. But I think there's a general consensus among most people that there's no way that these alternative measures can really start to produce the kind of the, the level of uh, the amount of energy that we need to keep life going as we've known it in the Western world. Would you agree with that? Oh, certainly, the um, uh, hydrocarbon molecule is the most energy efficient uh, uh, source of power in the world, and it dwarfs any other. Uh, tech, uh, uh, technologies out there that would claim otherwise, and this includes hydrogen-powered vehicles, uh, windmills, and solar panels, and so forth. So you can't beat the economics and the versatility of hydrocarbons. The the, the issue now, as you know, Simmons has has uh, mentioned in his conversations with you and your audience, is the issue of supply and therefore the economics of uh, petroleum, oil, and natural gas. And, uh, Jay, as you indicated, I take a fundamentally different uh, uh, perspective on this issue uh, than that of Matt Simmons. I think we have uh, globally and within the United States abundant supplies of petroleum in one form or another, and I don't think we're running out. I don't think there's a a need for panic, and I don't think there's a requirement for the Wall Street speculators to manipulate the market as they did uh, in the run-up to uh, to uh, July 2008 when uh, prices peaked at $147 a barrel and uh, was one of the drivers for the economic collapse a couple months later. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Mr. Simmons would agree. Uh, I think he, in fact, stated that there, we were not going to run out of oil. There will always be oil. His point was that it can uh, take as much energy to get it out as it as uh, as you get out, or more energy to get it out than what you get back. I think is his argument. That's an argument that you hear from peak oil people, is it not? Well, yes. I mean, there are a lot of peak oil theorists out there mm-hmm. who point to the United States peaking. Uh, its uh, 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 production of, of oil uh, in the 1970s. Well, in fact, uh, the United States has rebounded from that, in part t- thanks to uh, the very topical issue of offshore drilling. Uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico produces now 25% of all U.S. oil production. A decade ago, it did not produce anything. And that's, that's a reflection of technology. Now, that technology, as we've seen with the... Uh, the um, uh, deadly accident in the Gulf has an Achilles heel to it. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, uh, you know the technology is very new. We see drilling, offshore drilling, going to depths of ten to fifteen thousand feet. You know, it's, uh, almost uh, three miles, and producing uh, very significant um, volumes of crude oil. Uh, some of those platforms, you know, produce up to 200,000 barrels a day, mm-hmm. and and that you know that's a huge amount of petroleum um, coming up through these uh, uh, deep water rigs that we see. The big problem, as as we've we've obviously experienced now, is that uh, there uh, there can be accidents. There will always be accidents. The question is, can you minimize that? Uh, have um, companies like BP? Uh, followed uh, uh, due procedure? Is there a requirement for 
more regulation in terms of safety procedures and other uh, uh, accident preventative measures that can be taken? Yes, I, I think so. But the issue here is uh, within the territory of the United States, uh, we have an abundant source of uh, petroleum that we can access with current and future technologies. So U.S. production will not peak uh, in the manner that these theorists have uh, propagated. In fact, it will increase. And if it doesn't, it's for political reasons and environmental reasons that we may decide to lower our production rates and import more oil from offshore. Import more oil or see higher prices and less consumption possibly is another option, huh? Well, that's right. Yeah. That's right, and, and and there's a trade-off here, you know. Uh, the uh, I don't think there's any problem at all in importing uh, the the um, the uh, requirements that the United States economy uh, will need in future years from offshore suppliers. Uh, the cost of that is, you know, uh, could be very significant in terms of uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, economy functioning. Uh, in the manner that we were used to prior to the uh, economic collapse. Sure. But the fact of the matter is that I believe uh, supply will meet U.S. demand. We'll meet it uh, for the next uh, half a century at least and probably beyond that, as well as the global economy. Uh, supply will be there. It doesn't necessarily mean that prices have to go above $100 a barrel mm -hmm. if uh, demand increases are such that uh, we have to have another million barrels a day uh, every year for the next five years. Mm -hmm. Much of the price uh, volatility that we've seen over the last several years is related to non-economic factors. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that seems to be the case, and, and in fact, I would just uh, just remind our listeners that when we uh, talk about price, we're talking about dollars, uh, you know, because the oil prices, at least globally, is uh, denominated in dollars for the most part. And so what we're talking about is a measure, a unit of measure that's not stable. The dollar is being created out of thin air in huge amounts of dollars, so the price, the nominal price of oil could go up. And yet, in terms of the real price, may not be going up nearly as much as it seems to be going up. Well, that's right. That's so, right. Um, you know, I want to get on to uh, some of the technologies, uh, the, the evolving technologies. Uh, um, before we go there, though, let me ask you, uh, Chen Lin, who is a regular guest and a partner of mine, he's on this show, he mentioned earlier in this show that he thinks the golf accident is going to mean that companies that are drilling on land that are land-based drillers or land-based producers of oil and gas are going to be, uh, you know, that their, their share prices are probably going to benefit from it and that prices of oil uh, could actually go up somewhat as a result of this disaster. I see today with the equity markets really weak, though, we see oil down three or four bucks or three, three dollars and something, I think, earlier today. So, But what are your thoughts on that? Do you see the, the, po the prospects of um, uh, of this disaster in the Gulf leading to higher oil prices uh, first? And secondly, do you think that's going to benefit those in terms of their investors, benefit people who have onshore activities? Yeah. Um, I don't think, Jay, uh, that we'll see a direct linkage between oil prices and uh, the reduction of uh, offshore drilling and production. Mm -hmm. um, second, I think Yes, onshore producers will benefit from this. I think uh, politically uh, the proposal that uh, 
Barack Obama had had uh, uh, put on the table just a few weeks ago for increased offshore uh, drilling. Uh, I think uh, that proposal now is effectively dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we'll see uh, a slowdown, obviously, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, drilling uh, permits and a renewal of permits. BP, which devotes about 40 percent of its budget to uh, offshore drilling, uh, in terms of uh, exploration and, and, and production, I think BP is going to be hit very, very hard, and I think that's where we will see the onshore uh, producers benefiting, and and we'll see a shift here in the United States towards onshore uh, production. I think uh, it could very well uh, work to the benefit of um, unconventional uh, supplies in the United States uh, as it relates to. Um, oil shale and oil sands in the western U.S., in Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, and Nevada. So I think uh, uh, there may be some benefit to those uh, leaseholders in, in, the, in those areas. Um, yes, yeah, so speaking of unconventional uh, production, let's talk a little bit about the oil sands in Canada. Uh, and there are some evolving technologies there. I know that when I mentioned it to Matt Simmons, he sort of um, just sort of discounted it. But uh, Petrobank is a company that I had on my uh, on my list in my newsletter at one time, and want to go back and take a look at that company again. I think it's a fine company. It's producing lots of oil from the oil sands um, in Alberta. But as I understand it, they have a new technology that um, that is envir- much more environmentally friendly, uses less water, uh, also uses a lot less energy. Would you care to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's one of the uh, new emerging technologies in in uh, in. Uh, in Western Canada, we see it being applied in other places, however, uh, by Petrobank and subsidiaries in places like Colombia. Uh, and uh, they, they use uh, a technology that's driven by combustion as opposed uh, to the more traditional steam-driven extraction technologies. They use horizontal drilling and vertical drilling combined in that process. They minimize the amount of water and natural gas uh, required in their tide technology, and it seems to be really quite effective. It's operational, and I think it represents uh, the third generation of technology in terms of heavy oil extraction, the first being open pit mining, which everyone is familiar with. The second is steam-driven uh, assisted uh, gravity uh, drainage, which uses quite a lot of uh, steam and natural gas, you know, quite a lot of water and natural gas requirements. Uh, and now, you know, the new tide technology and also uh, a, uh, a somewhat similar technology uh, called uh, Vaprex, which is being developed in uh, Western Canada and uses new technology based on a minimal amount of water uh, that's injected into the uh, extraction system uh, uh, for heavy oils. It, it, it uses a solvent as opposed to using natural gas, mm-hmm. and this solvent penetrates and dis- essentially dissolves heavy heavy oil, heavy oil sands into a more fluid, uh, less uh, uh, viscous uh, uh, product, and then. Uh, moves that through the pipes into the um, into the wellhead, and then brings it up using certain uh, gaseous pressure systems. That's probably the fourth generation technology that we're looking at. So each of these technologies reduces the environment, the negative environmental impact. It reduces the operating cost. Because 
because you reduce the amount of natural gas and or water you have to use. And so it makes uh, the extraction of these heavy oils uh, much more cost-effective, and therefore uh, you produce more volume. So what we will see then with these new technologies, uh, including uh, uh, the widely um, uh, touted use of horizontal drilling uh, in these various technologies, you'll see the oil sands uh, continue to be uh, a major uh, uh, producer of of, uh, oil. It will increase from its current uh, 1.4 million barrels a day probably to about 2.2 million barrels by the end of, uh, of uh, the decade. Mm-hmm. It could be more. And most of that uh, production level uh, will come into the U.S. market. So technology is uh, uh, progressing in a very coherent way. It's more evolutionary than revolutionary. It's something that uh, 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 the capital markets can understand, because these are technologies that are being tested. Uh, they take time, however. There's no, there's no silver bullet in terms of finding an extraction technology that cannot uh, use uh, some uh, uh, volume of water or natural gas. But the reduction levels are all on a doubt. The, reduction, the, the levels of, of usage of natural gas and water are on a downscale. And uh, that's very, very promising. So these type of technologies can also be applicable for oil shale mm-hmm. and natural gas uh, shale here in the United States. If we just shift a wee bit, Jay, down to the, to the States, we see natural gas now becoming a, a very important player in the U.S. market as a result of of, again, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, the usage of high-pressured water injected at the um, wellhead to fracture rock-containing gas. And, and this is being played out in the Barnett Shale uh, in Texas and the Marcellus Shale in New York and Pennsylvania so that uh, we have an abundant supply of natural gas. Again, this does not necessarily correlate to why prices are low or prices are high, but what it does say is that we do have in the United States a massive supply of domestic gas that will uh, sustain uh, demand in the, United States, in the United States from domestic suppliers. If you look at North America, you could say that North American supply will be greatly uh, 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 maintained by domestic North American supply, Canada and the United States, because of these new technologies that are operational and will be operational in, in the oil sands in Alberta. Okay. What about, uh, to what extent are some of these technologies reducing the, uh, the reliance or the need for natural gas? Have you a sense of, you know, the one that Petrobank is using there uh, now? And, and I guess it is commercially successful. Is that, is that correct? Has it's commercially been... successful and it's under license, uh, uh, for, uh, for, uh, other, uh, other firms that may want to utilize that technology in their field. Uh, so, uh, the reduction of natural gas requirements is is uh, proceeding very well. Uh, the fact that natural gas prices are relatively low, uh, you know, helps uh, helps the process of uh, of the second generation SAG the technology. 
to maintain their market share. But I think what we will see, uh, particularly uh, uh, with incentives from uh, from government and with increased awareness to the environmental uh, uh, requirements, we'll see a lessening of the use of na- massive natural gas supplies to maintain uh, oil extraction uh, levels in the heavy oil uh, regions of North America. Well, we just uh, had the disaster in uh, the oil industry, of course, in the Gulf of Mexico. We just, right before that, had a disaster in the coal industry as well. Uh, what about coal? Coal you know, said that we are the Saudi Arabia of coal in North America. When I talked to Matt Simmons last week, he dismissed that and said, yeah, but it's all, it's all low-grade stuff that's, that's not worth anything. Well, I know you have a different take. What, what is your view on coal and how meaningful can coal be? Uh, to, to suit our needs, and also coal gasification. Is that something you see developing anytime soon? Look, there, there are some really interesting coal, you know, clean coal technologies out there, and uh, there are some very interesting federally sponsored programs that will act as incentives towards clean coal technology uh, being applied, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, coal-fired uh, uh, generation plants uh, throughout the country. Um, I don't think we're going to see the elimination of coal as a primary source of energy for a long time to come because it's abundant, it's cheap. Uh, these new technologies are being developed, um, and I think uh, uh, we uh, we have uh, too much in the way of supply that we cannot. Simply, uh, you know, avert ourselves from from that supply. We're shipping a lot of coal, interestingly enough, by rail to the Pacific Coast and uh, exporting it to China. So, uh, coal is is here to stay. Uh, coal gasification. Uh, some of these uh, uh, technologies uh, are expensive, and there's no doubt about it. But again. Uh, over a period of time, I think we'll see the, the 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 cost of these technologies reduced as they are applied on a larger scale. So uh, coal, look, is going to be what? Coal is one-third, maybe 40% of energy use in the United States. And and uh, we just have to find a way to adapt to clean coal technologies in a manner similar to the oil industry. The oil industry needs to adapt to clean uh, oil technologies. Um, that's probably the new frontier for fossil fuels, uh, uh, particularly coal and oil. Using new technologies so that you develop uh, uh, the uh, clean techniques of extraction and application of oil and of coal. And I think I think that's where you're going to see some very interesting new market developments. I think that's where you're going to see some investors' uh, um, uh, profit uh, quite significantly from these new clean technologies as they are applicable to fossil fuels. Well, you provide uh, some optimism here. I'm just looking at my screen here in my office here, and I and I see Matt Simmons is on CNBC. Uh, and they're showing all of the dirty golf water uh, on the screen here, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, I, I hope that there's somebody on with Matt that can give us some hope, because when we listened to Matt Simmons last week, we, you almost, almost ought to just give up and, um, uh, you know, crawl in a hole and die somewhere. But uh, 
you provide a lot of hope and a lot of optimism. I wanted to ask you, we only have a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit, uh, moving on to the geopolitical scene. In your book, you raise the question, why did the U.S. go to war in Iraq when it has 750 billion barrels of unconventional oil inland? Well, you know, that's, that's one of the great unresolved questions from the Iraqi war. And, and, and you would think, after all of the voluminous amounts of material that have, uh, that have been published on the issue, uh, this would have been addressed in greater detail, and it hasn't. Uh, and uh, and uh, the United States, in my opinion, went to war uh, in part uh, to secure the uh, oil reserves of Iraq, as a consequence of the United States' uh, dissatisfaction with Saudi Arabia, and I, that's an understatement, dissatisfaction with Saudi Arabia as a result of Saudi Arabia's uh, role in the 9-11 uh, attack here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States, uh, in my opinion, saw Iraq as the replacement OPEC uh, uh, linchpin uh, to Saudi Arabia, and wanted to uh, 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 make sure that U.S. dominance over OPEC, which had existed really since Roosevelt met, met with King Faisal at the end of World War II, was maintained. Uh, Saudi Arabia was no longer the the uh, the uh, uh, preferred uh, uh, party in that relationship, and uh, Washington hoped to create the preferred partner out of a uh, U.S.-dominated Iraqi government. And then then in the process, of course, uh, uh, secure preferential treatment for U.S. firms in the Iraqi Iraqi oil uh, sector. Well, really none of that happened, and in that regard, the war was a failure. Um, It's unfortunate uh, uh, that... uh, uh, we went into Iraq with a sort of preordained view of uh, what the oil market uh, ought to look like. Uh, what I'm suggesting to you is that when we went to war uh, uh, in Iraq in 2003, uh, that traditional uh, conventional view of the market uh, was already changing and that Washington was not aware that the market was changing literally under its feet and it still wanted to play the old OPEC game uh, in terms of controlling supply and controlling prices. But structural changes had taken place uh, in the market starting as early as 2000, and we miscalculate, and then we see that miscalculation now in, in the Persian Gulf on many different fronts, including the situation with Iran, including the fact that Saudi Arabia now is no longer exporting significant volumes of oil to the United States and is shifting to China, and the fact that Saudi Arabia and its uh, other partners in the Persian Gulf through the Gulf Cooperation Council, it's forming its own monetary union uh, with the implicit threat of trading oil in, uh, in a currency that is obviously not U.S. dollar. Well, that's very interesting. I know oh. we're we're really out of time here, Paul Michael. I'm sorry, but I just wanted I have to run one one idea by you. Then we had John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, on this show in the past, and John suggested that another reason we may have gone into Iraq was the insistence of Saddam Hussein to get paid in euros rather than dollars. You would, I guess, maybe you might agree with that. 
Yeah, look, I think that was a, a factor as well. Uh, uh-huh. uh, there were a number of factors that came together and uh, uh, which allowed a coalition to be built under the Bush administration All to right. justify uh, the war in Iraq. And okay, that, we're, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, Paul Michael, but I want you to tell our listeners where they can uh, pick up a copy of your book, The Rise of the New Oil Order. Sure, they can go to Amazon.com, or if they'd like, they can uh, call at the G. West office, 202-589-1. Okay, thank you very much. Well, that's all the time we have now, but don't go away because Rick Rule will be with us after the break. Those of you who know Rick Rule will not, will not leave this show because you know that uh, not only how entertaining he is, but also how smart and how good he is when it comes to investing. So those of you who do leave, well, that's your loss. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Rick Rule. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits. Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. Merex's indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. For more information about Merex Gold, visit us on the web at www.merexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. Coronado Resources is a Canadian-based exploration and development company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange. Its wholly owned Madison Gold Copper Project in Montana, USA has received revenue from high-grade gold and copper shipments while developing its underground workings to 250 feet below surface while limiting share dilution. Coronado is now driving the decline an additional 60 feet below the lowest workings to access the rich gold mineralization encountered from recent drilling and continue exploring the system, which is open at depth. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. 
At MiningStocks.com, J&S Associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. PMI Gold has just raised $7.5 million to expand drilling at four former gold mines we own in Ghana. Ghana is Africa's second largest gold producer, and with neighbors like Newmont, Anglo Gold, and Goldfields, and a land position equal to the entire length of the Carlin Gold Belt, we're going for the gold. PMI Gold is listed in Canada and Frankfurt, and plans to list on the Australian Stock Exchange to finance development of our first mine at our Kubi Gold Project. Our plans are big and growing. Come grow with us. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm delighted to have with me Rick Rule. Rick is the founder and owner of Global Resource Investments. Uh, Mr. Rule and his firm are successfully involved in the natural resource industries, investing on a worldwide basis. Uh, Mr. Rule is a well-known conference speaker noted for his contrarian counter-cyclical investment techniques. Mr. Rule and his firm believes that the resource industry uh, investor and speculator are at the dawn of the greatest speculative epoch of his career. Uh, today, he manages close to a billion dollars focused uh, on the mining sector through investment partnership and investment management firm and his brokerage firm. His knowledge and uh, exploration acumen makes him a sought-after man for advice. As a speaker at conferences, he candidly speaks, and I should say very candidly does speak, to both uh, from his position of almost unmatched experience, reputation, and knowledge. Uh, Welcome, Rick, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you. Thanks for the kind introduction. Well, it is uh, absolutely true. I've uh, I've observed you as a participant in many of these conferences and uh, uh, somebody who pulls no punches, and um, you know, you're an independent guy. I think, Rick, and you basically tell it like it is. And uh, you know, I have a lot of admiration for people who do that. I think we have Meredith Whitney that does some of that on the uh, in the financial sector. You know, uh, Ron Paul is a hero of mine because he sticks to what he believes and he won't let anybody uh, shake him loose, and, and he can't be bought and can't be compromised. And uh, I mean, that's the way I see you. So I'm so delighted to have you have you with me. 
Well, we have um, had quite a run-up here in the equity market since March of 2009, and as a contrarian investor, I'm wondering, are you taking some profits now, Rick, and uh, perhaps thinking of building some cash for um, uh, to redeploy uh, some other time? Uh, in fact, I am, Jay. It's not a conscious strategy to build cash. What's happening to me is that the valuations are uh, approaching or exceeding the valuation levels in our valuation models, and we're fairly disciplined in terms of the way that we deploy capital. So, you know, as stocks hit their valuation targets and we sell them, we're having increasing difficulty redeploying the cash. Mm-hmm. So cash is building up in the accounts, not as a strategy, but rather as a as a function of pricing. Okay. Um, so are you saying this is true in your in your resource sector as well as the market in general, or do you see the resource sector is still uh, offering a lot of upside? I see the resource sec- sector offering um, spotty upside uh, mm-hmm. in places. It's interesting. I don't see... Uh, uh, consistent valuations in resources. We see some sectors in the resources as pretty cheap and other sectors as relatively dear. Uh, we see the resource sector as very much a stock picker's market. But I, I, I must say that cash is building up uh, across a range of portfolios in our shop. Okay, what sectors do you see as being cheaper than some of the other, and what would you say are some of the more expensive sectors? I'm attracted to alternative energy and conventional energy. And when I say alternative energy, I'm particularly attracted to um, uh, hydro and geothermal, mm-hmm. which I think are, in most cases, economic without subsidies, mm-hmm. but receive generous subsidies anyway. I'm less attracted to wind and solar, which are at current uh, energy prices and uh, you know, with current technology and capital costs, uneconomic without subsidy. Uh, on the conventional energy side, uh, we see a very, very, very strong five-year outlook for crude oil prices. And so we see valuations on the conventional ener- energy side, with some exceptions, as being um, you know, fairly compelling in certain regards. Um, <clears throat> with regards to the gold stocks, which I know are near and dear to your heart. Yes, indeed. Uh, and as you know, have been very good to me over time. Mm-hmm. I'm approaching the point of view that although I believe the gold price is going up, um, most of the gold stock valuations, I think, have discounted most of the increase in the gold price. And I'm telling my customers, if you believe, as I do, that the gold price is going up, you're probably better off buying gold mm-hmm. than the gold stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, buy stocks because you think they are going to go up for some reason internal to themselves. I was, um, I've read several Canadian research reports recently that have talked about the fact that uh, gold companies are selling an average of two times net asset value at current gold prices and then telling me that something 1.6 times NAV is cheap as a consequence of that. <laughs> the idea of paying two times net asset value for a declining asset Yeah is something that I have a very difficult time with uh, in a mathematical or an economic sense. Sure, sure. Well, Rick, uh, you, you'd be looking at the producers then or companies that have some established deposits in the ground. There are always cases, of course, of companies that are finding new deposits that, uh, that may provide some opportunities in that sector, right? You know, the exploration generous sector has been so generous to me, Jay, over the yeah. years. Uh, <laughs> not that I haven't taken losses. It's a risky endeavor. Yes. But certainly... Um, 
understanding the exploration business and participating in the process of adding value with the drill bit mm-hmm. with the view to selling it to a major uh, has been a very, very, very good sector to me. And there are opportunities in that regard in all markets. It's mm-hmm. a, really a function uh, of the skill and experience of the team that you're backing in a junior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would certainly uh, exempt the very, very, very best of the exploration juniors in almost any market. Right. Well, certainly, I know that you're very cautious. You're a very smart investor. You don't throw your money around very uh, very rapidly. You're very careful, and I know that you pay an awful lot of attention to management. I think you're also very keen on sort of the project de- generator, prospect generator model. Is that right? I am, Jay. Uh, I've been, as you know, uh, speculating in exploration for more than 30 years. When I was in university, I learned that somewhere between 1 in 3,000 and 1 in 5,000 mineralized anomalies became a mine. So the odds of success in buying exploration stocks at random are horrific. If you juxtapose that with the fact that I have uh, bought 52 public prospect generator companies in 30 years and in that veil have participated participated in 18 economic discoveries mm. and thus far enjoyed 11 takeovers mm. the difference in expected outcome between those two approaches is so stark mm. that the sort of hallmark of my own exploration portfolio is in fact prospect generation mm-hmm. it's no, just I... statistically too compelling a case to ignore um if you were to run a regression analysis, a success regression analysis, mm-hmm. the success that I experienced with prospect generators is three standard deviations <laughs> better than the norm. Wow. Well, that, what about also uh, some of those prospect generators is one I have in mind in particular I, I believe you're invested in, but I think generally these companies, a lot of times the management owns shares. How important do you think it is that management has a vested interest uh, on the same side as the shareholders? Jay, I think it's absolutely critical. I remember 20 years ago interviewing a company in conjunction with our mutual friend, Doug Casey. Mm-hmm. And I was asking my normal pedantic questions about the balance sheet and the explorations thing. And in the middle of the interview, Doug says, uh, we can go now. And I said, what? He says, well, look here, Rick, these guys don't own any stock. Uh-huh. If they're not going to get themselves rich, why would they get us rich? Uh-huh. And of course, he's right. Um, brilliant. You want to be partners with these guys. You don't want hired hands. It's that's, it's it's too hard a business. That's that's brilliant. I mean, I th- I think I've seen it happen with with a couple of stories that I've been familiar with recently. Unfortunately, invested in, where uh, sometimes the mining executives are more are more impressed with the kind of uh, facility they build and the mining project they build than than the shareholders' wealth, and they don't really care that much how much dilution takes place in the process of getting there. So that's. That's really we had a, on the early part of this show um, a small mining company in Montana that's building wealth. That's sort of a paygo process where they don't issue shares. They just they just send out copper that's 54 percent or 45 percent copper and direct shipment, and they just keep developing slowly but surely. And they have 24 million shares out. This company's been around forever, and a lot of investors say, "Well, who wants to put up with that?" But at the end of the day, long term, you know, this this guy may build some wealth, whereas somebody else who is impatient and wants to get rich quick, they you know they blow out shares, and and there you have it. Um, I want to ask you. So geothermal is one of your favorites. I don't know. Rick, if you if you make a habit of, of mentioning names, I, you may not want to do that. But geothermal, why do you like geothermal so much? 
Well, I'm, as you have gathered, bullish about the entire energy sector. Um, three things about geothermal attract me. We don't have to explore for geothermal. Most of the geothermal resources that we're exploiting now were discovered in the last energy cycle in the 70s by major oil companies. Mm -hmm. So rather than exploring Terra, we're exploring files, which is much cheaper. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing about geothermal that I like is that for the first time in my life, and you'll be embarrassed for me, Jay, I'm politically correct. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's all the forces of society and all the forces of state sort of lined up on my behalf. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, although in my youth I was fairly proud of my enemies, I have to say it's a lot easier to have friends than have enemies. Uh, well, the, you know, sort of libertarian philosopher and taxpayer in me is horrified. Uh -huh. In the United States, the amount of uh, corporate welfare, the amount of largesse that seems to be descending on me, uh, would be embarrassing were it not so pleasant. Mm -hmm. um, the It has been decided by the political class and by society that alternative energy is better than any other kind of energy. And as a consequence of that, in the first instance, separate and apart from the subsidies, you're allowed to build these things. Mm -hmm. uh, a company I've invested in uh, recently uh, drilled a well in Northern California on the Napa-Sonoma County line Mm -hmm. And this well was drilled by a big conventional oil rig. Mm -hmm. um, had we been drilling for oil and gas up there, we would have been tortured before we were executed. Uh, as a consequence of the fact that we were drilling uh, a geothermal well, we received uh, you know, orders of commendation from mm -hmm. councils and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The difference is spectacular. And, of course, the difference in terms of both cost of capital and the price that people are willing to pay for power is truly stunning. Uh, I think it's as good a conjunction of opportunity relative to risk as I've seen in 30 years in the natural resource business. Wow. The last, time, the last time I saw an opportunity that was as compelling as this was in the sort of 1998 to 2002 uh, bear market uh, in uranium. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, uh, Rick, I don't know if you make a habit of giving out any names. I'm not allowed to make recommendations okay. because right. that would constitute research. Okay. Uh, well, I am don't required to, to disclose conflicts of interest. Okay. Well, let's not do that then. You don't, <laughs> okay. you don't want to get anybody in trouble with the powers that be. You want to be happy with your with your sure. friends there in government. So, um, no, I, I think that's that's very interesting that you say that. And in Nevada, I believe, is where a lot of the geothermal projects are going forward. Is that right? Nevada and California. And because you have a very low heat gradient, for one reason, you have a population there that's right next door. Yeah, those are we, part of the fact. In both in both cases, there's substantial demand for base load power, which geothermal provides. Um, and you know, because of tectonic activity, because of the geology of the western states, mm -hmm. the geothermal resources are fairly plentiful, and the the uh, distribution and grid infrastructure is well built out in the west. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we only have about a minute left here. What about this, this horrible incident in the Gulf? What's that going to do to the oil industry? Uh, it's going to hurt. Um, you know, the United States has made rapid uh, technological process, uh, progress in deep Gulf drilling, particularly the turbidite plays. Uh, and I think this is going to shut that down. Mm. Uh, I, this is a horrible accident. Mm -hmm. But I think rather than focusing on the fact that we've had a horrible accident really for the first time since... 1967 or 1968, people need to focus on how much oil has been produced and how many wells have been drilled offshore around the world without incident. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is actually the exception that proves the rule, although that appeals to people's intelligence, while the <laughs> pictures on TV appeal to their emotion. That's for sure. Rick, we're, unfortunately we're out of time, but I want to ask you, can you tell our listeners a little bit how they can track your work? Can they, is there a website where people can keep up with your firm or how they can? Yeah, the, the easiest way to find us is www.gril.net www.gril.net. Yes, don't juxtapose the R on the I. You go to a very strange website otherwise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, well, uh, I think you probably, it's, you know, when you tell your kids not to do something, they'll probably do it. <laughs> probably well, anyway, thank you very much, Rick. Up. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Folks, don't go away. We're going to have Roger Wiegand back with me for the wrap-up on today's show. Don't go away. I'll be right back. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and we're here with Roger Wiegand for this week's wrap-up. Welcome, Roger. Nice to be here, Jay. Well, we haven't had you on for a, a few weeks now, so it's good to have you back. I understand you have some comments on the dollar and the euro, and then uh, gold, and you have a new vehicle uh, for investors to invest in gold. If you could explain, uh, perhaps uh, go to talk about the dollar and the euro first. Well, what's happened here is these problems in Greece are spilling over into all parts of Europe and, of course, across the globe in the, in the money and markets, the currency markets, and the bond market. Uh, as a result of that, what's happened here is the euro has sold down and broken support at 130. The last number on the uh, on the June futures was 129.97. It's hanging on by its fingernails at 130. We think soon it's going to be dropping to 128, 126. Uh, the problems within Greece are spreading to, to Spain and Portugal. Despite the pail, the bailout agreement yesterday for about $140 billion, uh, it, people are not buying it. Uh, there was a lot of selling today pretty much across the board. Uh, my screen is mostly red with the exception of the bonds and the U.S. dollar. 
And as a consequence, the U.S. dollar has gone up. It broke 82.50 resistance. The dollar now on June futures is 83.5, 83.45. I think that's a very important number. Uh, in the bonds, we said last week we thought 119, 119.5 would be the top. But in light of what's happened with Greece, why we are now at 120 plus on the 30-year bond. So those are two key and important things. Uh, the next thing is is that uh, the grains were able to hang on. Uh, oil fell back. and it, The oil drop did not have to do so much with the oil spill, but more to do with the finance problems uh, with Greece and Europe and in the United States in New York. So oil fell down to 82 here the other day. It came back to 86. Now we're back at 82-plus on support again. I think that these markets generally are going to recover in a faltering way later on this week and then probably have kind of a mini-rally, not very much of a rally, because they got hurt pretty bad today. And I'm looking for a major sell-off after May 21st uh, moving forward into the spring, which could be as severe as 23 to 38%. Now, the next point is uh, we discovered this week, or last week, I should say, uh, information about a new physical gold trust in Canada called the Sprott uh, Physical Gold Trust. Okay, Raj, I only have about 30 seconds for you to explain this, so go ahead. The the code for that, the symbol, Mm -hmm. P-H-Y-S, look that up, please. It's 1098 on the close. It opened. It's only 60 days old. It started at... uh, 950 went to 1150. It's back at 11. Uh, there's numerous reasons to buy this uh, physical gold in the Canadian mint, Canadian dollar, uh, audited, insured, and so on. So we encourage people to look at PHYS. Okay, thank you, Roger. Uh, that's all the time we got. Unfortunately, we got to find a way to, to give you a little more time here on the show. You got a lot to say, but folks. I want to remind you that you can get a trial subscription to Roger's very fine, extensive weekly newsletter. For $49, call uh, Claudio Bossi in our office here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com. Miningstocks.com. You can also get a uh, low-cost trial for Chen Lin as well as my own newsletter. Next week, our special guest is scheduled to be Congressman Ron Paul, who was the main man behind the auditing of the Fed, Re- Federal Reserve uh, uh, legislation that was passed uh, not that long ago, although it was watered down. We'll certainly ask Ron about that and a host of other things. He is now running nip and tuck with Obama in terms of who Americans would like to see as the next president of the United States. So Ron Paul is scheduled to be with us next week. Uh, so we're going to have some other exciting guests as well as Ron. Uh, just want to thank my uh, senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show and making it increasingly more popular. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time is in-